Today, what we're going to be talking about is the second half of the two-week series on the Reformation, and this time in about England. So, we ended last week with Protestantism dividing most of Europe, it dividing Germany, it started in Germany and Switzerland, but it soon, as we said, spread to other parts of Europe. It spread to particularly parts of the Netherlands, Scandinavia. There were even large amounts of Calvinists even in France. And the big question, however, was, what about England? Where were they going to come down in the matter? And um, at first, it looked like England was going to remain Catholic. And if you look at actually the history of England throughout the Middle Ages, that they, there is something about the English temperament that they were probably one of the countries that was least prone to heresy in the Middle Ages and stayed um, Orthodox and the following of the church teachings. And that's at first how it looked like they were going to go during the Reformation. But through a strange course of events that we're going to go through, um, the Reformation will hit England as well. And though it's going to be very different than it, on the continent, because England, there is no Martin Luther or John Calvin or any other sort of dynamic religious figure. Um, so instead of being sort of a grassroots, bottom-up movement, the Reformation in England is decidedly, decidedly going to be a top-down um, movement done for, um, for basically, essentially for carnal and political reasons. I'm going to try not to spill coffee on myself this week, um, <laughs> but no promises. Um, so anyway, um, and the, but the reason why, so England, since it's, they don't have a Luther or a Calvin, they're not going to add any sort of tremendous amount theologically to the discussion of the Reformation. Rather, they're going to, when they do become Protestant, end up sort of adopting the ideas of Luther and Calvin. There's not going to be anyone coming up with new ideas. But the Reformation there is very important for two main reasons. And this is why we're going to go through it. And I should point out that if you hate history, a lot of people hate history, then this you might want to leave right now. Um, and that is because seeing that is most, for the most part a political movement, that tonight's class is going to be in many ways less theological and much more historical of events of what happened. But the events are important, like I said, for two reasons. Um, first, it's through the filter of England, that modern-day Protestantism, where it has been most successful in America, um, had, we came, for the most part, through the English filter. That's not to say there weren't immigrants coming from Germany and bringing Lutheranism to America, but in particular, even in South Carolina, where most of the large portion of immigration was Scotch-Irish, that it was through this English um, Reformation it, that or their, the English filter that the Protestant worldview is really formed. So that's one reason why the events are important. But second of all, one of the biggest themes that you'll see through it, and, and is very much a theme even the, in the Church of England to this day, is that the history of the Church of England and the Reformation in England is a very important case study of what happens when one tries to take the, the forms of truth and separate them from the deeper realities of, of the authoritative substance. Or the other way you can say it is when one tries to take, if you think of the three transcendentals of goodness, truth, and beauty, if one tries to take the beauty, and at times even the goodness, but not the truth, that there's important consequences of what happens. And like I said, in a great case study of what happens when you do that is going to be the Church of England. Um, and so... That's something that we'll see and why it's important today. So what we're going to start with, though, is a little background. All right, it's a little slow moving over. Um, and that is back in August 22nd, 18, I mean 1485, this is seven years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue that I always found it useful when doing things that are at all historical to always try to put historical dates in context or else they just sort of run together and you just sort of lose track in your mental timeline. So this is seven years before Christopher Columbus, um, 1485, that what happened was that England had been suffering 
from these terrible civil wars, these dynastic wars over who got to be in charge, called the Wars of the Roses. They were long, they were bloody, they actually resulted in the death of one half of all the nobles of England, died in the wars. And what happened, though, in 1485 is that they came to an end when a man named Henry Tudor um, invaded. He had a very loose claim to the throne, but he had a good army. And he invaded and defeated King Richard III on the Battle of Bosworth Field, which was immortalized in the William Shakespeare play about Richard III with Richard's famous lines on the field with my horse a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Um, That's when the wars ended. Henry Tudor won, and he started a new dynasty in England called the Tudors. And that is always when I used teach middle school and they always get a whole lot of giggling now um so anyway he started a new dynasty like i said he had a loose claim to the throne he did not have the strongest claim to the throne but he was a ruthless monarch and this is king henry the seventh is what he was known as king henry the seventh he was a ruthless and astute monarch he, he knew how to consolidate power he knew how to bring all the nobles and parliament under his control and he was able to establish enough authority that all of the other monarchs of europe were perfectly happy to marry their children to his children so what happened was his oldest son was a guy named arthur prince arthur who if he had lived would have been king arthur as a side note and anyway he betrothed his son arthur to this daughter of Isabel and Ferdinand in Spain, their daughter, Catherine. And so is Catherine and Arthur, Henry VII's son, they got married. And Catherine was only 14 years old at the time, and Arthur was only 16. However, Arthur was sickly, and he died six months later. And so, however, Henry VIII didn't want to let Catherine just leave the country because Ferdinand and Isabel were the richest monarchs in all of Europe. Remember, they had just discovered the Americas. They had a whole lot of gold. And so she had one very plump dowry, and they want, he wanted to keep it. So he asked them, hey, Ken, is it all right if she marries my next son in line, also named Henry? And they agreed. So poor Henry was nine years old at the time. They didn't get married yet. So they just agreed that Catherine would wait around in England until he was of a marrying age. So she did. Now, Catherine and Henry, they actually did fall in love. Um, Henry was very besotted by her because she was one of the most educated women in all of England. She had studied theology and philosophy. And Henry himself had studied theology that when, when Arthur was the one that was supposed to be king, Henry was supposed to become go into the church and become a priest. And so he had actually studied theology and he was very well educated in the matters and they they got along very well. So they had a happy and long marriage and Henry VII died. Henry VIII became king when he was 18 years old. Whoops, I forgot this, go to my next one. Henry became king when he was 18 years old. There's Catherine with her cool little monkey. And, and, there was only one problem, however, that as the years went on, Catherine had many miscarriages, and so she only ended up having one surviving child. And that child was a daughter named Mary, born 1516, the year before Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis. And this was very worrisome to Henry, and as well as his, some of his advisors, because no... Never before had England acknowledged a queen as a sole ruler. So, he was doubtful of whether the nobles would do that, and whether this would be the end of his dynasty, whether this would start the whole civil war, um, dynastic wars all over again. So, he started thinking, well, he needs to somehow get rid of Catherine, needs to divorce her, and marry someone else. But, divorce... For Henry, was was not really an option because he would have meant breaking up the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church does not allow divorce. And he was a very faithful son of the church. 
that he was an ardent uh, defender of the church, especially against Martin Luther, that he famously wrote a book called In Defense of the Seven Sacraments in response to Martin Luther, um, for which Pope Leo X gave Henry the title Defender of the Faith, which ironically is a title that the monarchs of England still claim for themselves to this day. Um, if, if you've noticed, even like you can look it up, Queen Elizabeth II, is, it was, one of her titles is Defender of the Faith. Um, and anyway, so he didn't want to get a divorce, so he started thinking, well, maybe I can get an annulment. And because part of it was he started more and more in his conscience thinking, oh, well, I'm, I think he convinced himself of this, that he convinced himself that his marriage to Catherine wasn't valid. Because what had happened was that the church, in according the, the Bible is sort of unclear over whether one can marry their brother's widow or not. There are some passages that, in Leviticus that makes it sound like, no, the Bible says, no, they shouldn't. And there's an idea called the kinsman redeemer where it makes it look like it's okay. So, but according to canon law, this is not divine law, meaning the church can dispense with it when necessary. It is against the church law to marry your brother's widow. So what had happened, though, was that in order to marry Catherine, he had had to get a dispensation to marry Catherine. So he started thinking, well, the Pope, his argument was, the Pope was wrong to give me the dispensation to begin with. So what he wanted was he wanted the Pope to dispense with his dispensation so that he could annul the marriage. So what he did was he sent the Chancellor of the realm, who was this very fat cardinal named Cardinal Wolsey, who was a very, very powerful man, um, as well as a very large man, he sent him off to Rome to try to argue his case to get his annulment. And there was another reason that he wanted an annulment at the time, and that is he had taken up with a woman as his mistress named Anne Boleyn. And some historians have tried to argue that Anne Boleyn is the primary cause for the Reformation in England and her influence that she has on Henry. And indeed, one of the things that she did is she was responsible for giving him a book um, by the English heretic named William Tyndale called On the Obedience of Christian Man and How Christian Rulers Ought to Govern. And Tyndale, one of the things that he's most famous for, was that he had many of the same ideas of Luther and had the same view that the government was ordained by God while the church was not. Therefore, the government should be the, over the church. So he makes that argument in this book, and she's the one that gave it to Henry and planted the idea that, hey, you're the head of the church in England, not the Pope. Now, Tyndale was eventually, he was actually burnt by, as a heretic but um, by Henry VII, but that's an aside. And anyway, this was very bad timing, though, when he sent Wolseley to go try to get the annulment from the Pope in Rome. Because the Pope at the time was holed up in the castle of St. Angelo, the Pope's castle at the Vatican, while the Holy Roman Emperor from Germany, that, who was actually a Catholic, but they had a little dispute that happened. And the Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, his mercenary army of Lutherans, the Catholic with the mercenary army of Lutherans, his mercenary army of Lutherans was rampaging through Rome, burning churches, while the Pope is holed up in the castle. So it's at this moment that the English show up saying, hey, were you willing to, are you willing to grant an annulment? Now, the Pope was obviously not real inclined to do this because of the fact that Catherine, who he's trying to get the annulment from, was Charles V, whose army is rampaging through his city's aunt. And um, so he sort of has a dilemma. Well, he doesn't want to make Charles V any angrier, but he doesn't also want to make Henry angry. He, he didn't know what to do. And likewise, the church teaching was actually rather torn. Um, so he was not. So the question was, was he going to do about it? So at first, his question, his answer was, well, we'll sort of wait on it. And he actually he told Wolseley, well, why don't you look into the matter and give me your advice? And then later on, a little bit, a couple months later, he said, well, actually, send it back to Rome and let's have the trial here and let's, but let's do it thoroughly and take its time. And actually, he actually came very close to giving the annulment. There's actually a copy of a papal bull written by, um, this was Pope Clement VII at the time, where he actually was going to grant the annulment, but he just hadn't decided yet. And that's where he left it. He just said, 
he said to Henry, he's like, hey, I'm still trying to decide. Um, go, don't marry Anne Boleyn yet because I haven't decided yet. So just wait. So there's a myth of history that the Pope said no. He actually never said no. He just said, just wait while I look into the matter. But Henry was a little impatient and took matters into his own hands. And so he decided that he was going to marry Anne anyway. And so the way that he did this was that he decided to sort of replace all of his advisors with what are usually considered sort of these low-born henchmen that are willing to do his will. And so the first thing he did when he decided that he was sort of laying, was laying out his plans for how he was going to declare himself the head of the church was he first of all replaced his chancellor that was in charge of running the country, that Cardinal Wolseley had died um, and had been replaced by the famous St. Thomas More. But when he started... He, he's not one of the low-born henchmen, that when he started the process of, of this going on, what's going on with wanting to marry Anne Boleyn, Thomas More had resigned, and then he had been replaced with a guy named Thomas Cromwell on the upper left, who was a very nefarious fellow. He's going to be the architect, the architect of the Reformation in England, and he's going to do it not for any actually even for any reasons of conscience or religious reasons. He was not a religious man himself, but he's going to be mostly just interested in gaining personal power and consolidating power under Henry. And he's going to be sort of the hatchet man of the Reformation. And then the other, so that's the first important figure that he puts in place. And the second one was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head bishop in England, had died. And so he replaced him with a secret Lutheran, also named Thomas, Thomas Cranmer. And Cranmer was willing to do whatever Henry asked him to do. So, instead of waiting for the Pope, Cranmer declared, he gave, the, Cranmer gave him the annulment, declared the marriage with Catherine Nolan Void, and went ahead and performed the wedding between him and Anne Boleyn when Anne was six months pregnant at the time with the future Queen Elizabeth. Now, the Pope who had told him to wait was obviously a little upset by this and said, no, you're still married to Catherine. You can't be having another marriage. And so he responded by declaring this new marriage invalid, null and void, and excommunicating Henry. And so it was actually in response to this of his getting excommunicated and not just being allowed to do whatever he wanted that Henry declared himself the supreme head of the church in England. And shortly after... Parliament followed suit by passing a law declaring him the supreme head of the church in England called the Act of Supremacy. And however, they weren't content with just that. They wanted basically to make sure that everyone in England went along with it, that they all agreed. So they passed another law called the Oath of Succession, which was the next one, which was basically the Oath of Succession was that every all the nobles and the clergy had to swear that Anne Boleyn's daughter, Elizabeth, was the next rightful Queen of England, not Catherine's daughter, Mary. And so by doing so, what they were essentially swearing and was that the marriage to Catherine was invalid and the one to Anne was valid. That they were, it, they were basically accepting the act of supremacy was part of the oath. And then they passed what were called the treason laws, whereby saying that if you don't accept this, you're a traitor to the crown. Now, there were actually, in a sort of sadly, very few Catholic martyrs that happened under, that, under Henry VIII. Um, that almost all of the nobles and clergy do not have the moral fortitude to stand up to him, but rather just go along with it. So when you look at the martyrs under Henry VIII, there's some list of unnamed ones we'll get to in a second, but there's only two that are at all famous. And that is one bishop out of the entire country. Actually, there's a couple of other bishops that refuse, but they were out of the country at the time, and they just don't come back. And we'll get to one of them in a second. But the only one present that refused to swear the oath was St. John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester, who was um, imprisoned in the Tower of London and famously said, He's, um, that if I were to consent that the king is the head of the English church, I would be guilty of tearing the seamless garment of Christ, the one Catholic church. 
so for which he was imprisoned and beheaded. And then the other one that's most famous, and if you've seen the movie Man for All Seasons, you probably know the whole story, and that is St. Thomas More, who had been Henry's good friend and his chancellor. And likewise, Henry or Thomas refused to swear the oath, but he had retired and gone into quiet um, retirement to try to avoid the problem. But this was a hit, hit, Henry took this as a condemnation of his actions because he desperately wanted Thomas's approval. Um, because Henry did have sort of a strange conscience and he knew what he was doing was wrong. And so they had he was arrested as well. He they had a, he had a trial. The jury was entirely staffed of Anne Boleyn's relatives. And he was also condemned to death and was beheaded. And his second to last words are very famous. That is, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Um, most people don't remember his actual last words, which always a man of good humor. His very last words were he had been in the tower for quite a while and had not shaved. And his last words were to his executioner, wait until I put aside my beard for that never committed treason. Now, St. Thomas More and John Fisher were not the only martyrs, but like I said, there were very few. Um, there's also some members of the religious orders, which we'll get to in a minute, um, such as like the Carthusians and the um, Benedictines and the Cistercians and the Franciscans. There were a few of them that were executed, but not nearly as many as they'll be executed later on in England under Henry's daughter. Um, now, one of the things that he's most famous for doing during the Reformation is what's called the dissolution of the monasteries. That after making himself the supreme head of the church in England, Henry's next turned to the English monasteries and the land and wealth that, they co that he coveted. That this is not a small thing. That England at the time, the Catholic church, in particular the monasteries, owned a quarter of all the wealth in the country. That all the land in the country, a quarter of it was owned by the English monasteries. And actually the wealth of England was built upon the English monasteries, and in particular the wool that came from the Cistercian monasteries. Um, that's why actually the prime minister to this day in the House of Commons, the seat that he sits upon is called the wool sack because it's stuffed full of wool from Cistercian monasteries, which is what built the wealth of England. Um, and so it was a big, they had a lot of money and Henry wanted it. And in particular, his henchman, his hatchet man, Thomas Cromwell wanted it. So what they did was they put together um, these royal visitors that their job was to go around to the different monasteries and write a report of life in the monasteries. And so they came back and they reported lives of gross immorality. Granted, there was probably some truth in some cases, but for the most part, it was completely exaggerated. But they used it as a pretense to have Parliament, parliament abolish First of all, all the smaller monasteries and give all of, the, all of the wealth and all the land to the king. And this actually started a revolt in northern England um, called the Pilgrimage of Grace, which is actually the largest revolt in the history of England. Um, but then they brought in foreign mercenaries and crushed the revolt and then decided to go ahead and disperse and take away the larger monasteries. Now, in all, so in all, all the monks and nuns of England were driven out of their monasteries and forced to earn secular livings. Um, some 18 abbots um, were, were executed under charges of treason. And then the, all the lands were given to the king, who then proceeded to give it, most, keep a lot of the wealth for himself, but then to sell it off and to give it away to... Um, friends of Oliver Cromwell, and sort of basically, this is how he gained complete control over England, is that England had a lot of powerful nobles, and so he's like, so he decided to make basically a whole new set of nobles that are beholden to him because he gave them all their land. So he gave all these new families all a bunch of land. And that's why you see um, the great, a lot of great houses in England that when they have abbey um, in them, it's because it, originally they're a monastery, whether it's Downton Abbey on PBS or... Um, in Emma, Mr. Knightley's house of Donwell Abbey, um, it's because the families obviously got their money originally from Henry VIII and Oliver Cromwell. I mean, not Oliver Cromwell. That's a different Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell. Um, anyway, this had huge effects on England. First of all, 
This created this huge beggar class across England because back then, poor people didn't have great websites like Obamacare. No, um, to go and get their help. They, they, got their, they got their charity from the monasteries. So they took away all of the monasteries and this left the poor even poorer. And so you had this huge beggar class that spread across England, but it also had an effect of destroying education in England for several hundred years. And the reason why is that around 50 years before the Reformation takes place in England, that England actually had one of the highest literary rates in the history of the world, and it was the most educated country in all of Europe. And the place where the common folk were being educated was by the monasteries and the monks, and in particular in what were called the chantry, chantry priests, um, that their main job was educating the common folk. And so they demolished that, and they left the populace of England without any education. And it's going to take them hundreds of years to recover from. Um, and then also, like I said, this vast amount of money that Henry gains is what's going to allow the Tudors to rule basically as absolute monarchs in England and not have to do things like call Parliament um, because they have all their own money, and the reason why kings later on have to call parliament is to try to get money. Now, hope I'm not going too slow. Oh, no, I'm on time. Good. Um, now, Henry VIII is famously sort of took the church in, in England to schism, though, not heresy. And by this, it's, it's kind of like the difference between the Eastern Orthodox and the Protestants, that the Eastern Orthodox, they have all the sacraments, they believe in all the necessary parts to be a, a true valid church, they have apostolic succession, so like their, their masses are really valid, they really have true confessions, they just don't accept the authority of the Pope. That this was the state of the church of, in England under Henry VIII, that they cha he changed out the Pope for himself, but they did not change any of the core teachings of the faith under Henry VIII. So, for instance, they still had valid masses in Latin. They still had an unmarried clergy. They still had all seven sacraments. Um, and all, they, they didn't change anything under Henry VIII. Um, however, and Henry, like I said, he viewed himself as schismatic, but he, to his dying day, did not view himself as a heretic. He actually, in his last will and testament, he asked for masses to be said for, for the repose of his soul. Um, and he was actually very ardent persecutor of Protestants. Um, like I said, Cranmer was a Lutheran, but he was a secret one. He would not have let it come out under Henry VIII because Henry probably would have burned him at the stake. Um, Protestants did not fare well in Henry VIII's England. Now, Henry's next wives did not fare too well. He was not any more faithful to them than he was to Catherine. So, he, Anne Boleyn, um, he accused her of infidelity when she only had a daughter, though in her case it was probably true, and he had um, her head chopped off, and he married an even younger woman named James Seymour, not to be confused with the actress. Um, and then she did finally give birth to a son, young Edward, and so in order to guarantee that Edward was the next in line, Ironically, Henry had Parliament declare that his marriage to Anne Boleyn was invalid and that Elizabeth was therefore illegitimate. Now, Jane died in childbirth and he had three more wives. Um, one annulled her marriage with the king, another he had beheaded for treason, and the last one outlived him. Um, interestingly, because of his wives, Henry also had his very own hatchet man, Thomas Cromwell executed because and had him beheaded because Thomas Cromwell had betrothed, betrothed him to one of his wives, Anne of Cleves, which is the bottom left one, and um, betrothed him to Anne of Cleves, who was a Protestant princess. And it wasn't that Henry was offended by her religion, but he was certainly offended by her looks. And he was very unhappy about having to marry her, and he had Cromwell killed for it. Now, Henry finally died at the age of 55 in 1547. And he's succeeded by his 10-year-old son, Edward VI. And it's going to be during Edward's reign of six years...
that Protestantism is really going to take control of the Church of England. Um, and they're going to make drastic changes in doctrine as well as worship. Um, and in, they're going to... Um, Thomas Cranmer is going to be the guy that's most responsible for this because Cranmer was very thrilled to have someone in young Edward VI that he could talk to as a near equal. And he's going to love the fact that he's going to be able to use him to progress his sort of Calvinist agenda. So famously during Edward VI's reign, Thomas Cranmer composed what was called the Book of Common Prayer, which Thomas Cranmer might have had a lot of problems, but he was a great poet. And so he wrote the Book of Common Prayer, which was a new liturgy that for both the Mass as well as basically a consolidated version of the Liturgy of the Hours and with morning and evening prayer. And he... Like and it, his the Book of Common Prayer was literally, literally so well done that it became sort of the standard of English prose, and he um, he had it echoed many of the ancient Latin phrases, the um, for, figures of speech, and poetically, like I said, it was considered very well done. However, they tried to impose this upon all the churches of England, telling them they had to use it, and this led to another peasants' rebellion. Um, and this is an example, another example of how the people of England did not want any of this, but they're going to be forced. But once again, they crushed it with another army of mercenaries. And it's also under, the, like I said, under Edward VI, um, the young king, that the Church of England, they, not only did they change their worship with the Book of Common Prayer, but they changed their beliefs. They adopt basically a creed um, of theology that comes from John Calvin, and they also changed the rites of ordination um, so that the priests would no longer be, um, that they would only be ministers of the word, denying that they actually offer the sacrifice of the mass. So it's, their um, ordinations became invalid. Um, however, Edward VI was also sickly. And so he only ruled for six years. And it looked like all these changes would come to naught. Because when he died, he was succeeded by his Catholic sister, Mary. And Mary declared that her primary goal as queen would be to bring the Church of England back into communion with Rome and to remain faithful to the Catholic Church. And so she immediately suppressed all of the Protestant changes and... So on November 30th, 1554, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Cardinal Reginald Pole, the guy with the glorious beard, um, on the Pope's behalf, actually restored England to full communion with the Catholic Church. And Reginald Pole, I have just a slight side notes about him because he's just a very interesting figure that not many people know about, that he was actually the cousin of Henry VIII. And he, he had actually had his own claim to the English throne um, as well. But he was a very famous Renaissance scholar. He was good friends with Thomas More and Erasmus. Um, and interested when Henry planned to annul his marriage to Catherine, um, Cardinal Pole actually went straight to his face and told him that it was a terrible idea and he couldn't do it. And not that many people say that type of thing to Henry VIII's face and get away with it. But he did. Um, and so he, even after that, he sent him off to Padua in Italy to go study. And it was during that time that the Act of Supremacy was passed. And Cardinal Pole wrote to Henry telling him how his marriage to Anne was invalid. And he basically wrote a treatise telling him why every way, reason why his marriage to Catherine was valid. Which made him really angry. And he ordered... Reginald Pole to come back, and he instead went to Rome, where the Pope made him a cardinal, and he actually started trying to muster up support of all the countries of Europe to try to invade England and try to force England to become Catholic again, and in response, Henry had Reginald Pole's mother and um, sister executed, no, sorry, his mother and brother had their heads chopped off, and Reginald actually, when the Council of Trent was called, as the ecumenical council called in response to the Reformation. At the first session, Reginald Pole um, oversaw it on the Pope's behalf, and he presided over the Council of Trent in the first session. And he became a very important person. 
And so, like I said, when Edward VI died, the Pope sent him back to England to sort of to restore the church there. And he did so under Elizabeth. Um, so he brought them back to full communion. I mean, not under Mary, sorry. Uh, under Mary. Brought them back under full communion, and he actually died several hours after Mary. Um, they both got sick, and they both died. Now, Mary, um, to go back a little bit um, about her rule, I, even though I just said she died. She hasn't died yet. Um, that her rule that she because, is going to be known to history as Bloody Mary because of the fact the winners always write the history books. And she will be known as Bloody Mary and her um, half-sister Elizabeth will be known as Good Queen Bess, even though Mary will only kill 276 um, people while Elizabeth will kill thousands um, but anyway, she could have been successful, but she is going to be unsuccessful in trying to restore the Catholicism in England for mainly for two reasons. She makes two big mistakes. That her first mistake was she married the King of England, I mean the King of Spain, Philip II. And this was a mistake because Spain, that the English were always very skeptical of the Spanish. They thought of them as just way too hot-blooded, way too passionate of Catholics. And there was that they and so they start. They were already at this time Henry. They had started a tendency under Henry of starting to think of the Catholic Church as something foreign. And so going and marrying a foreigner would did not um, endear her to her people. Even though Philip only ever actually comes to England once during her reign, um, it still they did not like that. And but her biggest mistake was in persecuting the Protestants in England. Now, one of the most famous of these was she had Thomas Cranmer burnt at the stake. And so, um, interestingly, she had Cranmer arrested, and he was actually, he, um, when they arrested him, he immediately recanted all of his Protestantism um, and said, no, I take, sort of take it all back. But then when he found out that it wasn't going to save his hide, that he was still going to be killed, he recanted of his recantation and said, well, fine, I don't take it back. And so they had him burn at the stake, and in all she had 273 Protestants burnt. Now, the thing is, she probably could have gotten away with it in English history if she had burnt them all as traitors and as threats to her throne, but she burnt them as heretics, which instead, in the English imagination, sort of turned them into Protestant martyrs. And this is where the famous book, like Fox's Book of Martyrs, came from, was they started to, um, this idea where they started to take basically all the heretics of the church history and to make them into these sort of Protestant um, martyrs, um, which if you ever look at the book, is actually the, who they include as martyrs is completely ridiculous, but that's a, an aside. Um, so anyway... That was her big mistake. That's how she gets known as Bloody Mary. But she was also not in good health, and only after five years, she also died. And she was succeeded by her half-sister, Elizabeth, who had promised Mary on her deathbed that she would keep England Catholic, but her word's not going to mean too much to her. And so the new Queen Elizabeth I is going to bring England back into schism. Now... Ooh, that sounds good. All right, here, Ireland is a group. All right, now, um, and so she basically start all the Protestantizing, not even a word, that happened under Edward. They brought it all back under Elizabeth. They redid it. And this, in particular, brought her into conflict with Philip II of Spain, who had been her brother-in-law. Um, he was not happy about this because he was a very devout Catholic, um, and um, what she's most famous for is what's usually called her via media or her middle way but it was not so much of a middle way because what she famously tried to do is she wanted to make everybody happy she wanted to make the Catholics happy and the Protestants happy so her solution was to take all of the theology of Protestantism and try to keep the trappings the forms of the Catholic Church so the Famously, her, what's called her 39 Articles is the sort of the confession of faith of the Anglican Church. And it was entirely Protestant. It's entirely Calvinist. But they did keep many of those ancient forms of the Catholic Church, um, those ancient traditions and the, the, the ceremonies, all the smells and bells, to try to keep the common people happy. But uh, 
Book of Common Prayer was once again foisted on all the people. They passed the law called the Act of Humanformity, that where they made it where not only did all the churches have to use the Book of Common Prayer, but everyone had to go to the churches where they're using the Book of Common Prayer or face fine or imprisonment. Now, um, interestingly, back when Henry VIII started the schism, we said only one bishop stood up against Henry. That when Mary brings it back into schism, that England had 400, um, no, sorry, Elizabeth, yeah. Um, Mary had restored all, brought in new bishops. They had restored the hierarchy of the church in England. That when Elizabeth brought it back into schism, that this time almost every single priest and was every single bishop and almost every single priest refused and stood up against her. So in, in all, she actually had to remove 400 different priests um, from their parishes, as well as every bishop in England. Um, but they did. And mo- a lot of them left the country um, because at the time she had not gotten too violent, that she was actually relatively gentle, that pro- Catholics faced fines or imprisonment, but for the most part they weren't facing death or anything yet. Now, it's not until 1570... Then Pope Pius V issued a bull excommunicating Mary, I mean Elizabeth, excommunicating Elizabeth and declaring that the English people were not bound to obey her because she is not the valid Queen of England anyway. And ever afterwards, Elizabeth became a bitter persecutor of the Catholics. So all Catholics under her started to suffer, especially in Ireland, um, where her forces they killed thousands and thousands of catholics in ireland but in england she became a bitter hunter of priests she had what are called her priest hunters that would go around and look for priests um and she had this huge spy network where they would find them give them the chance basically to um recant of their catholicism or be executed um there was famously a seminary that was set up right across the english channel first in dewey belgium and then reims france they moved it for the sake of training English priests to keep smuggling them back into England so that Elizabeth could keep trying to kill them. And it was at that seminary where they famously made one of the, the first authorized English translation of the Bible in what's called the Dewey Reims Bible that actually predated the famous authoritative version, which is known as the King James Version, which a lot of times Protestants try to claim is the first English translation, but know that they actually took the translation... The, the Protestant King James Version was actually based, for the most part, off the Dewey Reims um, translation by the Catholic seminary in Dewey and Reims. Um, but anyway, they kept pumping these priests into England, um, in particular from the Jesuit, newly formed Jesuit order. But Elizabeth's ministers would track them down and have them killed. And so the most famous of these um, was St. Edmund Campion, who a great book is his biography by Evelyn Waugh, which I highly recommend. But they would, so like I said, they would capture them, then they would give them a chance to recant or be dot killed as a traitor, which, if, which it means to be hung, drawn, and quartered, which if you've ever seen the end of the movie Braveheart, they show that pretty well. Um, now, one of the things that is, Elizabeth is also most famous for is that one thing that could be confused in Tudor history is that there's two different Marys. Um, there's Bloody Mary, who's a Catholic, but then there's another Mary called Mary Stuart, also known as the Mary Queen of Scots. Now, Mary Stuart actually had a better claim to the throne than Elizabeth, um, and she was the Queen of Scotland. She, um, had, she was Catholic. She had actually been the Queen of France because she had been married to the king over there, but when the king died, she went back to Scotland where she was also the queen. And, but when she got there, she found out that her entire country had abandoned the Catholic faith for the most part and had followed the teachings of John Calvin and that the Presbyterian Church had become the new state church um, of Scotland, in particular under the figure, um, the very harsh John Knox, who's sort of like the English Calvin. And so she ran into trouble up there. She had a lot of opposition from these Presbyterians, but then she was also embroiled in scandal that she married a guy named um, Lord Darnley who was murdered, and then she married very quickly after that, married the guy that was accused of murdering him, and which was not a good idea. 
So she was in trouble in Scotland, and so she fled to England for to her cousin Elizabeth for protection. And Elizabeth quickly obliged by imprisoning her for 19 years. And because Elizabeth knew that she actually had a close, more rightful claim to the English throne than she did. And so, what ended up happening, though, was that guy down in Spain, Philip II, was planning to rescue um, Mary. And so, finally, Elizabeth decided that the easiest thing to do was for the threat was just to have Mary executed. So she was condemned as a traitor to the English crown, even though she's a queen of a different country. Um, it's kind of like America executing the prime minister of Canada for treason to America. Um, and so anyway, though, the night before her execution, um, she famously they recorded her prayer of, even as thy arms, O Jesus, were spread here upon the cross, so receive me into thine arms of mercy and forgive me all my sins. And she went to her execution carrying a crucifix and a prayer book, and she had her head chopped off in 1587. Now, in response to this, Philip II in Spain said, this place up in England is crazy. Something has to be done. And so this is when he famously put together his ill-fated armada to attempt to invade England. Um, That didn't turn out too well, but that's where that came in. Now, let me keep going on so I I don't run out of time. Now, um, though Elizabeth had a lot of male friends and admirers, one thing she's famous for, for ruling for 40 years, is that she never got married. And for this, she's known to English history always as Good Queen Bess or the Virgin Queen. And that Elizabeth and her propaganda ministers, um, one of the things that they did was, in order to make the people happy and to strengthen her position, was they worked on sort of building basically a cult of Elizabeth that they, were, they tried to um, basically replace the veneration of that old Catholic virgin with the new virgin, that of Elizabeth. So they did things like abolish Marian feast days and replace them with Elizabeth holidays, like her birthday and her coronation day. And they sort of tried to make her into this larger-of-life figure. That's why the way that they always like basically dressed her up with the eggshells on her face and everything was just trying to make her look like this sort of ethereal um, like goddess and anyway, um, but because she doesn't get married, that her throne will obviously not pass on. That's why she's the last Tudor, um, that it'll actually end up passing on to the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who she, whose head she had chopped off, who will become King James I. But anyway, she's often remembered, though, as one of the greatest English monarchs because England did thrive under her. Um, it was under her that some of the best writing in English history happened happened um that's when william shakespeare lived ben johnson another famous um poet um edmund spencer and it was also during her reign that england set up their first colonies in virginia and named after her um and in a lot of ways elizabeth is another interesting figure that she had been very cruelly treated by henry and so a lot of historians have tried We've argued that her cruelty was a product partly of how cruelly she had been treated. Um, But all the same, um, shortly before she died, which is a very interesting end, that shortly before she died, she had these sort of these panic attacks and these fears of death in the dark where she refused to lie down because she was afraid of death. And right at the end of her life, she was on her, on her deathbed that they tried to bring in some Anglican priests to come and see her and give her last rites. And so her famous, her last words were, when they asked to bring them in, was she said that she would not see some hedge priest, meaning some false priest. And her, actually, her very last words were, there are no priests in England, I have killed them all. And she finally collapsed and died in silence. So even then she obviously knew something of what she had done was wrong. Um, now, the history of Catholicism in England, however, did not end with Elizabeth. It did continue, the persecution of Catholics in England. That interestingly, it was actually not, Catholicism was not legalized in England until 1789. Um, 
same year that the Constitution was written. Wait, 1787's Constitution. Um, but anyway, two years after the U.S. Constitution. Um, and, it, the, and until this day, it is still legal for actually an English monarch to be a Catholic. Um, but, as I said earlier, that over the history of the Anglican Church, that we are nowadays seeing, especially the fruit of, that when you attempt to keep, like Elizabeth, the forms of Catholicism, the beauty, and so, like I said, even sometimes the goodness, and you take it, separate it from the truth that's found only in the one true church, um, you end up losing the, the whole substance that binds it together. And um, so Anglicanism throughout its history has started to ha- have this sort of splintering of, of reactions of what to do about this fact that they, they want to, like I said, keep all these forms of Catholicism, but they don't want to be rooted in the truth of the church and the, the revelation of the church. So what options are they sort of left with? Now, there's sort of two options that this has traditionally led Anglicans with or left Anglicans with. One option is if they've sort of followed this, this lot to their logical conclusion, that if you're, and this is something we got into last week with Martin Luther, that if you're not going to accept the authority of the church, then ultimately, if you're not going to accept an absolute standard of truth, then what you're left with is relativism and the idea of everyone making their own truth for themselves. Um, and this all too often has become sort of the new norm for the Anglican Church. This is why, they, why they've lost the ability nowadays to philosophically and morally argue against um, positions like um, gay marriage, women's ordination, that have become, like I said, the norm of Anglicanism because they don't have an objective standard of truth to look to. Everyone makes the truth for themselves, so why not? Now, the second option is when you look, they have the beauty and you sometimes have goodness without the truth is to, um, I was going to say, is to start looking at that truth matter and trying to decide, well, can we try to insert that back in? Now, when people start seriously looking at whether they want to insert truth back in, um, they're once again left with two more options. Um, So, and this is because I should say that the second option of inserting truth, of returning towards that objective standard of truth, meaning the Catholic Church, is a very fearful um, option that makes tremendous demands upon one. And so many Anglicans, that they have been throughout their history very serious about keeping, the form, like I said, the forms of their ancient, in the words of Father Newman would say it, their, their historical patrimony, um, that they've, they've reached that question. I know I'm sort of being a little redundant here. They've reached that question of, well, can we continue to keep all those forms without the substance that actually binds them together? Now, and like I said, they have two options. Now, what often happens when they start studying um, the, the, the ancient church, where those forms came from, why those forms are present, um, that one thing that they often will do is they say, well... I reach this point, basically it's the, the point of no return. I can either take the leap and, and go back towards the, the Catholic Church and where these things came from, or what often happens, it, it, the best way to describe it is there's sort of an intellectual strangulation of their own conscience where they have to, in a very sort of gruesome intellectual manner, say, well, you know what, I know where this leads, but I'm choosing not to follow because I don't like where it leads. Um, or the other option, which has always happened and has happened often through the history of the Anglican Church. In particular, you see the greatest example of this was the blessed John Henry Newman, um, was to take that fearful step and say, all right, if we're going to really keep those things that we like, that those forms, that the beauty of the church, then we're going to have to convert and go back where it actually leads. Um, And I know that was as clear as mud. All right. Now, but this is sort of what ties in to the the creation of what's commonly called the ordinariate. That Pope Benedict recognized how difficult it was for many Anglicans that truly did want to return to the authority of the church to actually do so. And the reason why 
is a very good one, and it's a very simple one, is that it's important to remember that England, before the Reformation, had been part of the Catholic Church for a long time. And as such, like they had their own deep and historical, um, like once again I said, religious patrimony, meaning natural ex- sort of national expression of the faith. That if you go to a Catholic church in any country, there are similarities, but there's, a, for instance, a Spanish form of Catholicism, there's a French form of Catholicism, they have their, there's a Polish form of Catholicism, they all have their own elements that, that, that they add to the faith. That there is a such thing as sort of different national characters, like Germans are very different than Italians, they both have their gifts, they both have their weaknesses, and they both add different things to the faith. Now, in England... A lot of that, that national expression of the faith was retained in the Anglican Church. So, there's a, what a lot of Anglicans didn't want necessarily want to lose that um, tradition that, and the national heritage of English Catholicism, which, actually, frankly, lived on, in many ways, more in the Anglican Church than the Catholic Church. So, this is what he, what he created the ordinariate for, which is basically a right within the Catholic Church, an Anglican right within the Catholic Church, whereby they can use, um, like I said, a form of the, um, basically a Catholicized form of the Book of Common Prayer, and try to retain, basically, the elements of ancient Catholicism in England um, that had been lost since then. Um, and this is... There's something about Benedict that really appealed to the English and um, that they just, when he went and visited England, they absolutely fell in love with him. And that's when he's in 2010. And that's when he started the Ordinariate. And so it's interesting that this is sort of the beginning of sort of the restoration of the church in England, which is something that if the Catholic Church really wants to have its true self, it really needs all the parts that it lost. It needs England. It needs the East. It needs all of these things that really do add character of the church um now an interesting fact while the ordinariate is still going sort of slowly um i did see a statistic last year that last year was the first year since henry the eighth that catholics actually outnumber anglicans in england um now um but that being that's more because of the fact not so much that there's that many catholics is that few anglicans um but anyway um so we should pray for continued success of the Catholic Church trying to win back England as well.